the brain is really much more dynamic and much more plastic than a dedicated hardwired system might have predicted. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Doug Lay. And I'm Ryan Watkins. Located at the rear of the head, the right-hand side of the brain's visual cortex enables us to recognize and differentiate people's faces. Today on Parsing Science, we're joined by Marlene Behrman from Carnegie Mellon University, who speaks with us about the case of a child with medically intractable epilepsy, who, after surgeons removed the region of his brain responsible for visual processing, was able to regain the ability to recognize people's faces without otherwise impacting his language or visual perception skills. Here's Marlene Behrman. Hi, I'm Marlene Behrman. I'm a professor of cognitive neuroscience at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I grew up in Johannesburg, South Africa, and attended university and completed a master's degree in Johannesburg, South Africa, before moving to the University of London to complete a fellowship, and then on to the University of Toronto, where I obtained a PhD in experimental psychology. I have had a long-standing interest in uh, studying individuals whose brains are atypical in some way. And the fundamental question that I'm interested in is how the signals from the eyes are interpreted by the brain. I have been at Carnegie Mellon University for over two decades, and it is really an amazing institution to be part of. Um, And I've had the great good fortune to collaborate with and learn from some of the world's experts in the field of neuroscience and computation. Marlene specializes in the mechanisms underlying how our brains are able to translate what our eyes see into useful information. To begin our conversation, we asked her to explain the fundamentals of how human vision works. When you open up your eyes, the retina, which is the back of the eye, can only pick up certain types of information from the visual environment, namely how much light there is. So, for example, where there are windows, there may be more light compared to if you look down towards the floor where it may be in shadow or darker. So how much light and also something about the quality of the light, and that is technically its frequency on the wavelength spectrum, which translates roughly into something about its color. But of course, as uh, visual observers, we don't have this uh, sparse sense of the environment. In fact, rapidly and uh, pretty immediately, without much effort, we have laid before us a very rich and detailed a meaningful sense of the environment. And so my question or the question that keeps me up at night and drives my research program is how the brain assembles this meaning from the paucity of input received at the retina. And it's a relatively hard question, although we've made a lot of progress in the last couple of decades, there are still many, many outstanding issues. And one approach that I've adopted to try and understand this issue is to study individuals whose visual system of their brain, the cortical visual system, is atypical in some way. It's a little analogous to thinking about the approach one might adopt when confronted with an unbelievably complex machine whose mechanism you're trying to understand. 
And so the possibility might be to remove different parts of the mechanism or even to damage different parts of the machine as a way of gaining insight into the fundamental workings of this complex system. And so the work that I do is to study individuals whose visual system of their brain, the cortical visual system, has been altered in some way, and to understand what the consequences of uh, this deficiency is for their visual perceptual behavior. Scientists sometimes study anomalies to better understand our world. Marlene's paper describes the case of a young boy, referred to by the initials UD in order to protect his privacy, who had a third of his right hemisphere surgically removed to treat his persistent epileptic seizures. Here, Marlene describes his case. So in the last couple of years, one of the models that I've been working on has been to study the brains and behaviors of young children who've had a piece of the cortical visual system removed. So the case UD, whose profile I'll be discussing in some detail, when we first recognized um, that he had some deficiency, he was roughly aged four and a half, and he started having uh, epileptic seizures at the time, and it became clear that these seizures were a result of a benign tumor in the visual system in the right hemisphere of the brain. My colleagues and I undertook a longitudinal study of UD from the time that he had been identified as a candidate for neurological surgery, where the optimal approach was to remove that part of the brain where the epileptic seizures were starting. After the surgery, UD was essentially missing the entire visual system in the right hemisphere. And so he only had the visual system of the left hemisphere available to him. And the key question that we asked in our investigations with UD was to understand the consequences of the loss of one of the hemisphere's visual systems, with the prediction being that if the brain were sufficiently, in inverted commas, plastic, another term might be something like malleable, or has the potential for reorganization, then we might in fact see the single left hemisphere visual system in UD take over the role of the missing right hemisphere as well. UD was just six years old when he had his surgery. So Fran and I wondered how he's doing today, five years later. UD is an incredibly curious and insightful young man. He is very knowledgeable about his own condition and the life trajectory that he's had up until this point. He is uh, also mature beyond his years and feels very strongly about participating in scientific studies if the outcome will be helpful for anyone. And so he is a very willing, very capable participant. So even under conditions where I've been trying to shield his identity and to make sure that I only convey information in a confidential fashion, 
he has kind of pushed me to be much more forthright about sharing his information. And he has come forward and given interviews to newspapers and had his photograph taken in an attempt to really try and disseminate this information as broadly as possible. Some neuroscientists believe that people have two distinct visual systems, one which processes the spatial location of objects, the other involved in object recognition and identification. Others, however, believe that the model is better regarded as a heuristic for understanding vision related to actions versus that concerning perceptions. Doug and I were interested in learning Marlene's thoughts on the theory. I think this is one of the most fundamental questions that confront cognitive neuroscientists like myself. Question has to do with how the brain is organized such that it can subserve the multiplicity of behaviors that humans have available to them. So we, we have a whole repertoire of different behaviors from you know, mathematics all the way through you know, face recognition as just two examples. And uh, the debate has always been about whether or not there are different subsections or subdivisions in the brain each of which is solely responsible for one of these behaviors. This viewpoint is often referred to as the localizationist view because the goal is to localize in which particular region of the brain a particular behavior is represented. The opposite extreme, way at the other end, is that there are in fact no subdivisions in the brain. The brain acts as a unitary mechanism and the brain in its aggregate gives rise to this myriad of behaviors. And then, of course, there are many, many different theoretical viewpoints that lie somewhere uh, in between these two endpoints of the continuum. And so the pendulum has swung forward and backward between localizationist um, proponents to equipotential proponents, and again, to a number of uh, alternatives that lie in between. Neuroplasticity, or brain plasticity, refers to our brain's ability to change in form and function throughout our lives. It's believed to happen during both normal brain development as well as in response to injury. Marlene explains next how UD's case increases our understanding of these processes. The fact that UD had the region of the brain that is typically thought of as responsible for face recognition removed during his surgery, allowed us to examine whether or not a different region of the brain would be able to take over the role of face recognition. In fact, that was one of our findings. UD has face recognition which has emerged in the left hemisphere rather than in the typical site in the right hemisphere. And his face recognition is absolutely normal. And so this has allowed us to provide evidence for a view in which there is not absolute hardwired, uh, innately specified dedication of a brain region for a particular function. Rather, it supports a view of the brain in which there are opportunities for reorganization, for alternative recruitment, and for atypical solutions to 
uh, the more standard uh, brain organization. And I think that UD's ability to recognize faces and the emergence of representations of faces in the left hemisphere offer a really unique insight into this particular question again with the conclusion being that the brain is really much more dynamic and much more plastic than a dedicated hardwired system might have predicted. Scientists often develop the answers they predict to their research questions in advance of carrying out their studies. However, sometimes events unfold so quickly that there may not be sufficient time to create formal hypotheses in advance of their experiments, or, as was the situation with UD, performing a medical procedure. Doug and I asked Marlene what trade-offs exist when carrying out research in such natural settings as opposed to in controlled ones typical of clinical trials and laboratory experiments. A lot of the work that I do is sometimes referred to as, again in inverted commas, nature's experiments. So I have no control over which patients turn up, where the resection has taken place, how old they are, when they first started having seizures. Um, And so it's rather an opportunistic research program where you never quite know what path this research is going to go down. Um, I've had a longstanding interest in trying to understand plasticity of the cortical visual system. And it is partly based on my experience that Uh, damage to the brain in adults does not readily lend itself to the extent of plasticity that one might like. So if an adult had a resection uh, of the magnitude of UD's resection, they would show very little recovery. And so I was always interested in what the optimal amount or what the upper bound of plasticity might be and studying children would allow us to explore that question. And even though it's wonderful to be able to go into these studies with particular hypotheses, I think we were uncertain exactly what the outcome was going to be. And maybe this is a good study to do because whatever the outcome was, it was going to be interesting. That we were able to see um, such plasticity and that it emerged relatively early we took to be a dramatic result showing that there is indeed remarkable opportunities for reorganization and plasticity. In 1848, Phineas Gage famously survived an accident in which an iron rod destroyed much of his brain's left temporal lobe. After the injury, friends reported drastic changes in his personality and behavior. While scientists often seek to recruit large groups of people for their studies, sometimes idiosyncratic circumstances lead to rare opportunities for research. We asked Marlene what she sees as the advantages and disadvantages of such single case studies versus larger scientific trials. We'll hear what she had to say after this short break. This episode is sponsored by We Share Science. When researchers are curious about what is happening in science, they go to We Share Science to explore video abstracts uploaded by other researchers. You can search their vast catalog of video abstracts to learn about the latest scientific findings, or you can share your research with the world. Whether your research is in progress or already published, at We Share Science, you can share your science and grow your impact. 
Explore the world's research at WeShareScience.org. Now, back to Parsing Science. Here's Marlene Berman. There, in fact, is quite a good history in the field of cognitive neuroscience for single case studies. Phineas Gage is an, is an excellent example. But another extraordinarily famous case is the patient HM who had the hippocampal regions in both hemispheres removed uh, at the Montreal Neurological Institute at a time when there was rather little understanding about what role was played by the hippocampus. And it turned out that after this bilateral surgery, HM was profoundly amnesic, really could not um, acquire any new information, was unable to lay down any new memory traces after the surgery. So I think uh, the case study of UD sort of stands on the shoulders of giants uh, who had gone before us in this field. And the intense and very detailed scrutiny, particularly longitudinally, of a case is tremendously informative. The downside of studying just a single case is that it's impossible to know whether or not our findings are only applicable to UD, whether there's something very very idiosyncratic about UD and his brain and his ability to um, reorganize the brain following the resection. And so it really is critical, I think, to be able to replicate this kind of result and to show the generality of this kind of plasticity. And so um, my view is that there are advantages and disadvantages of both the single case approach as well as the group approach. Evaluating whether UD's facial and object recognition improved following his surgery required a systematic set of behavioral tests, or assays, to assess how his brain was processing visual information as he recovered. Next, Marlene describes how she and her team determined what behavioral tasks to use to measure his progress. We thought long and hard before starting the experiments uh, because we wanted to put together a set of evaluation procedures that would be challenging for the visual system, kind of like a stress test on the visual system of the brain. Because if UD had perhaps a, a sort of subtle problem, we wanted to be sure that we could pick up that subtle problem. And so we put together a set of measurements that were especially challenging. The measurements that we um, arrived at were two measurements or two assays of what I will refer to as intermediate level visual computation. So when information is sent from the eyes to the brain, the brain kind of receives these little bits and pieces of light signals and um, something about color. And there begins to be a transformation, sort of analysis and synthesis, kind of cutting up and dicing and rearranging all of this information, essentially 
taking higher order statistical information from this input and re-representing the input in a format that could then be sent on to later areas of the visual system. So we wanted to tap into various stages of visual processing, starting off with intermediate level processing. And what I mean by intermediate level is the mechanism by which kind of bits and pieces that are presented to the visual system begin to be put together in a meaningful way. So if you have a square that you are looking at, the four edges of the square, the lines, kind of get sent as individual components up to the brain, but then they are rearranged, this information is rearranged to be holistic, to form a square, to take on the more complex geometry. And so we wanted to be sure that uh, UD was able to do this kind of integration of lower level components. Two approaches to magnetic resonance imaging, one revealing the brain's physical structures, the other its functioning, informed insights such as these. So Ryan and I asked Marlene to describe what the similarities and differences of these methods are. We examined his brain by having him um, lie in the bore of an MRI machine. And of course, each time he came, we took very detailed images of the anatomy of the brain to see whether or not there were any changes, whether there was any obvious shift in the brain in some way. Turns out there really wasn't very much. And so we focused most of our attention on understanding the function of the brain. This technique, which has become extremely popular probably in the last decade or so, is functional magnetic resonance imaging, in which roughly what one is doing is tracking the blood flow in the brain with the intuition that if a part of the brain is working really hard, it needs a lot of blood to support its metabolism. And so blood will flow to that area to serve that computational task that the brain is doing. And so we can use functional MRI in a case like UD by showing him various images while he's lying in the MRI machine. We've got a kind of a projector and he can we show him different faces or different words or cars or any kind of visual stimulus. And we examine the parts of the brain that are activated in response to these visual stimuli. And essentially, this was the method that we used at every time point when we examined him to look at which parts of the brain were involved in face recognition, were involved in word recognition, as well as the recognition of other types of visual classes. But this is essentially the mapping that we could do uh, over the three years that we studied UD's brain. While Marlene and her team didn't detect anatomical changes in UD's brain, we were curious to learn how structural MRI can be used to measure the brain's ability to actually change its physical structure. We often think that structural plasticity occurs in a, at a much, much more fine-grained level than MRI can resolve. So when we think of structural plasticity, we th tend to think more about 
individual cells that begin to send out little fibers to their neighboring cells so that they can transmit information from one cell to another cell. And they can even sprout these new little fibers to make up kind of new little cell assemblies and little ensembles. We don't actually have the ability to examine that in human brains. And structural MRI is way too coarse for us to begin to see any changes at the cellular or neural level. So I think the jury is out still on what the really detailed structural changes are in the brains of the individuals we've been studying who show changes in the functional maps, in the reorganization of the underlying functions that the brain takes on over time. So while we don't have obvious and easy access to structural plasticity in humans, there are wonderful studies that are being done in other species with many different techniques that have uh, begun to uncover something about the nature of these very, very small and detailed changes that occur at the cellular level and at the level of neurotransmitters. The best that we were able to do is to look at these functional changes that permitted us a window into the reorganization of the brain functionally. Since it occurs throughout our lifetimes, we asked Marlene what sorts of people might benefit the most from neuroplasticity. Some of the other work that's currently ongoing in the lab is very much directed to answering a question like that. And um, because we've been able to recruit a relatively large series of individual patients and have been able to track the changes that occur in this relatively large set of individuals, and again, something like 15 individuals, which is not a lot really, but maybe sort of amongst the largest case series that that exist in, in this field, we've been able to look at who does show plasticity and who doesn't and why might there be this differentiation. And so what would be critical would be to predict a priori who would go on to show these changes. I'm not sure we are there yet. I would have said that we have some initial glimpses, and there is much more to be done about this. But it sort of feels like it's such a great time to be alive doing the kind of work that I've been so fortunate to be able to do. We have new methods that are currently being developed. We have new analytic procedures, big data, statistical approaches, all of which we can adopt to allow a more precise and fine-grained characterization of brain function and of behavior. So I feel like in the next, I don't know, several years, we'll have a better shot at chasing down the answer to that question. Established as a result of an act of Congress approved by Abraham Lincoln in 1863, election to the National Academy of Sciences is one of the highest honors in science. New members of the organization are nominated each year by existing ones based on their distinguished and continuing achievements in original research. As Marlene is the first member of the National Academy of Sciences to join us on Parsing Science, 
Doug and I were interested in hearing how she learned of her election. I was visiting my parents in South Africa when the voting and the meeting and the finalization took place. I had no knowledge whatsoever that I was even being considered. This is um, a very thoughtful, deep process that is conducted by the members of the National Academy and very confidential and It had never even occurred to me that this might be going on behind the scenes. And so in South Africa, I turned my cell phone off, obviously. Phone calls are tremendously expensive. But I noticed that people were trying to phone my cell phone. There was like New York numbers and numbers from Chicago and numbers from Florida with the area codes. And the best that I could make of this was that there was some catastrophe had happened in the United States. You know, I don't know quite about Armageddon, but some very, very serious set of circumstances. And people were trying to contact me to to tell me this. So, of course, I turned on my phone and a couple of minutes later, Somebody said, Marlene, I, we've just walked out of the meeting in Washington and I want to congratulate you. You have been uh, selected as a member of the National Academy, which was so dramatic. In fact, the other numbers were numbers of other members of the Academy who were all phoning to congratulate me. It was, of course, um, a, a great honor Uh, to be selected and to be inducted, and perhaps even more striking for me because I grew up in South Africa, which is so very, very far away, and received the message when I was so very far away. Um, I, I ran to tell my parents who, like me really, didn't know much about the National Academy. I mean, I sort of heard about it a little bit, but it was, you know, the the... Um, the zenith of somebody's career and uh, seemed so not really relevant to my life. So I loved the fact that I could share this with my parents. And um, I I will also add that I'm glad to be the first and honored to be the first member of the Academy to be on your show. I'm also the first woman from Carnegie Mellon University who was inducted into the National Academy. And I I am very honored and humbled to play that role. And I hope many women at Carnegie Mellon and across the world will be inducted into the National Academy and will be able to have the prestige and the honor and make the contributions that their male counterparts have been able to do for such a long time. That was Marlene Berman discussing the article Successful Reorganization of Category Selective Visual Cortex Following Occipitotemporal Lobectomy in Childhood, which she published with Tina Liu and seven other researchers on July 31, 2018 in the journal Cell Reports. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e36 along with bonus content and other material that she discussed during the episode. If you want to listen to Parsing Science at home or in the office, and you have an Amazon Alexa, you can now simply request, Alexa, play Parsing Science podcast. Reviewing Parsing Science on iTunes is also a great way to help others discover the show. 
head to parsingscience.org review to learn how to do so. Next time on Parsing Science, we'll be joined by Ben Ballas from North Dakota State University. He'll talk with us about his research into the flashed face distortion effect, an illusion in which normal faces, when rapidly presented in people's peripheral vision, are perceived as grotesque and distorted. You know, I think my first reaction was probably just, whoa, right? <laughs> it's, it's a really striking effect. And it's one of those you don't have to really explain to people what they should be looking for. We hope that you'll join us again.